If you've been a pastor for any length of time, you know how weird the expectations can be for how you conduct yourself. One person put it like this, that you are expected to be a pillar of virtue in any situation that you find yourself in, no matter how poorly you're treated. You are always to take the high road. You are always to be the pillar of virtue. And that expectation can be incredibly crushing. We're going to talk about today what the expectation actually is, both biblically, societally, in your congregation, how to set proper expectations, how to set proper accountability structures, and how to not crush under the weight of such expectations. My name is Lane. This is the Preaching Donkey podcast. Typically at Preaching Donkey, we talk about how to preach and communicate so that you can have confidence and clarity when you get up to preach your messages. We talk all about preparation, delivery, all of those kinds of things. If you want some help there, go to preachingdonkey.com slash 21 days. I've got a free resource for you there that I think you'll really like. We have been in a kind of an unusual series of episodes, these last seven episodes, with this being the last one, where we've been looking at this article that Andrew Lang wrote a few months ago, and it went really crazy viral, and it was basically him documenting his departure from the church, and he set out these seven expectations, these unrealistic expectations that pastors have on them, and he just said, I got tired of living under the weight of these expectations, so I'm done. So I thought it would be prudent to come at this from the angle of what if you don't want to be done with your church ministry, you want to last for the long haul, but these expectations are uh, kind of weighing on you and you have to manage them. So if you've missed it, you can go back through and watch the last six episodes, everything from the pressure to be a professional speaker, to being the CEO of your organization, to being a professional counselor, therapist, <laughs> to being a fundraiser, to being the director of HR for your church. Last week, we talked about being the master of ceremonies. And with each one of these, we filtered it through the lens of, is this something that I'm going to embrace personally, delegate to someone else on my staff, or am I going to outsource this to another organization? And it turns out that in a lot of cases, in almost every case, the answer is a little bit of a combination of all three. You need to embrace personally the responsibility because it is there, but in some cases you embrace it personally at a deeper level than other things. For example, when it comes to speaking, being a skilled speaker, you want to embrace that personally because you are going to be speaking, especially if you're the, a pastor who speaks. And that's typically the type of people that we talk to here at Preaching Donkey. But when it comes to like fundraising, that might be something that you outsource to an organization if you want to do a capital campaign. And when it comes to counseling, maybe you delegate that to someone else on staff that they can really be responsible for that ministry. And then maybe you outsource a little bit of it to a professional counseling center if you have a really tough case. And you embrace it personally to the extent that you can do pastoral care in your role in light of all the other responsibilities that you have. So we filtered everything through those lenses. And here's why I say that. <laughs> here's why I say all that. When it comes to being a pillar of virtue, <laughs> there's no way to delegate that. And there's no way to uh, like outsource it. You have to actually kind of just live it. So first, I want to kind of talk about the expectation that is on you, that's placed on you from other people. And he uses the word pillar of virtue, and he does it somewhat tongue-in-cheek. It's a way of saying that you're above reproach, which would be the way that 
Paul describes it in 1 Timothy and Titus, and we'll get to that in a second. But he says pillar of virtue, I, I think as a way to kind of make note of the fact, tongue in cheek, that it's a little bit of a, a, a tall order, right? I mean, he points out that you're expected to be this pillar of virtue regardless of how you're treated, regardless of the way people, you know, run over you, the way people say mean things about you, your spouse, your kids, your ministry, the same people who will run you down behind your back. You've got to be kind and nice to them. And so, and not to mention that, you also have to be completely above reproach in every area of your life. Some of that is, in fact, a biblical requirement, but the extent that it's taken can be incredibly tough depending on the type of church you're in, how legalistic your church is, how much your church places you on a pedestal where they see you as a little G God. And so you're expected to behave as a kind of proxy for Jesus um, and almost be their savior. It can be very, very codependent. And so we'll get into that. But first I want to look at the actual biblical requirements, like what does the scripture teach? And so I'm, I'm taking this from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul just says, trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer or an elder would be another word for that, desires a noble task. So elder, overseer, pastor might be the way that you would describe it. All means the same thing. Now, the elder is to be above reproach. He starts out with that, and then he's going to define this. What does it mean to be above reproach? Faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner in a manner worthy of full respect. So here... This is a, a list of a lot of things that are, I mean, any one of these would be difficult to handle, right? Um, or some of these are, some of these should be relatively easy, but some of these are, are tough. What I mean by this is like temperate. What does that mean exactly? Temperate means that you don't have road rage, right? It means that somebody cuts you off in traffic and you don't, you don't get upset or at least you don't show that you're upset. Um, Self-controlled, Okay. What that means is that you're a disciplined person. We could take that as far as to say that if you if you you know eat too much, that, that's a problem because you're not self-controlled. If you spend too much money, you, you let's say you go into irresponsible consumer debt, right? That could be bad. Obviously, you need to be faithful to your wife. If you're cheating around on your spouse, that's not that that that's a disqualifier. Um, able to teach, we can help with that <laughs> here at Preaching Donkey. It's one of the things we do. Not given to drunkenness, okay? Well, does that mean that you uh, n never have a glass of wine? Does it mean that you drink in moderation? There's going to be different perceptions of, of, of that. And, and again, a lot of this is, goes back to the pressure that pastors feel to be this pillar of virtue according to the standards set by name the community member, name the congregant. That's really what we're talking about here is the pressure because you might feel like, okay, I've got a clean conscience. I'm not perfect, but I'm faithful to my wife. I'm exercising self-control. If I choose to, I'm drinking in moderation. I'm not violent. You know, I'm gentle. I'm not quarrelsome. I'm not out there looking for a fight all the time. 
I'm not a lover of money. I'm doing the best to manage my family. You might be, you might have all of that to the to the extent that you're able handled. And yet somebody in your church sees something that you say or do, or maybe even a look that you gave someone, and they go, aha, he's he's not living up to the standard that he has set for us. Or even worse, they see that your kid, you know, is in uh, the kids' ministry and they're in fourth grade and they're acting like every other fourth grader out there, right? And because they're not these little perfect angels that everybody thinks they should be, just because you're their dad, well, okay, now, you, now you've got to answer for that. And that can be really hurtful because they're just children and they don't need to live under this crazy pressure that they didn't ask for. But that's still an expectation, right? So all of this can be incredibly, incredibly difficult to handle. And there's, there's not really a good way to alleviate this pressure. It's kind of always there, but we can manage it. And here's some things that... I did when I was in full-time ministry, some things that I emphasized and some things that I found that that really worked. Number one, you need to have a good official accountability structure and it needs to be official. So like you need to have a body of elders that actually do hold you accountable. And the reason for that is it protects you and helps you to make sure that you're doing the things that you're supposed to do in your position. But also it's a way of, buffering between the expectations of every random person in your congregation or community and what your team is actually holding you accountable to. And if there's a difference, then you can at least point to your board. If it's legit, can't be a bunch of people who just work for you that are on the payroll. It's got to be a legitimate group of people who know you, who are around you, who see what you're like day to day. They've got to be in your life and they've got to be in the church. But if that's happening, you can point to those people and you can say, okay, they're aware of it, uh, you know, and, and I've got, I've got accountability so that you're not just subject. Everybody's afraid of accountability, but really it should protect you more than be a, um, punitive measure against you. So accountability that's real can go a whole heck of a long way. The second thing is you need to set, this is why, okay, let me say it this way. Your teaching must be incredibly gospel-centered. The way that you teach about the Christian life needs to center on reliance on and dependency on Jesus and not a moralistic behavioral standard. Because what happens is, if your teaching is void of the gospel and void of Jesus, the kind of Colossians 2, Christ in you is the hope of glory. If it's void of that, what happens is people start to just think all of it is just a matter of behavior. So you then become the standard bearer for behavior. And if you slip or fall or, you know, are rude to somebody or have a bad day and you're just short with people or or maybe you don't return somebody's text fast enough or whatever, now all of a sudden, because you have violated the moral standard and it is the point, behaving is the point, then you have failed. As opposed to a gospel-centered approach, which is to say that, of course, you're going to fail because you are not the standard bearer Jesus is. And as we are pointing to him and keeping our eyes 
fixed on him as the author and perfecter of our faith, not our pastor, then what happens is, is people start to say, okay, yeah, of course, of course you're, you're not going to be perfect because you have said over and over and over again that you are not the standard bearer. Jesus is. You are not the focal point. Jesus is. You are not the point of all, like, you're not the one that we need to be focused on. Jesus is. So the more you build that into your culture, the less of a weight you will feel to be something that you can never be. You are not their savior. You've never gotten, you've never lived a perfect life that they couldn't live. You've never died a death that they couldn't die in their place for their sins so that they could have life and be connected to the father. You didn't do any of that. And so you want to make very, very sure because you cannot assume that people know that. You cannot assume that the the human tendency is always going to be bent towards behavior and performance and earning, right? We want to earn our way. And so you have to continually point to Jesus and him crucified and him risen again as the thing that gives you justification, that gives you rightness with the Father. Because what that does, it doesn't give you a license to go live however you want. That would be an incongruency and it would affect your ability to reach people. That's why James three says that we who teach will be judged more strictly. All that is still true, but you want to take the pedestal that you're placed on as a pastor and you want to knock it down. One of the things in the church that I worked at in DC for about 10 years, there was a big kind of pass. I called it pastor dust, right? Nothing really counted unless the pastor was there to like spread his pastor dust. And, and it wasn't just the lead pastor. It was all of us. If a pastor was there and could spread their pastor dust around, then, then everything was legitimized and everything is fine. And I worked really hard to try to decentralize that culture, more of an Ephesians 4, what Paul says that he called pastors and teachers to equip the saints, apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers, apest, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So your role as a pastor is not to run around spreading pastor dust on everybody, blessing them with with your um, ability to rise above the clouds and be perfect. If you do that, if you set that kind of culture, you will cr- be crushed under that weight because that is not who you are. You are <laughs> you are not perfect, neither am I. You, you are not sinless, neither am I. That is not possible. What we have is the ability to be sanctified progressively over time as we trust in Jesus. And we are always going to be yearning for something that we already have, but do, but it's not yet, right? We already have rightness with God, but we're not yet made perfect. So these are the tensions that we live with. So when you kind of go back to just the random person sitting in the pew watching you preach every week, they have a perception of you that you maybe never have a bad, depending on how much they've been around church staff, depending on how much they've been around pastors, they may or may not think like this, but typically, especially if you're from a very kind of cultural Christian, you know, if you live in a culturally Christian area where people just kind of go to church because they've always gone to church, their perception of you is that you're kind of not real. You're, you're kind of, um, you're like, uh, Ned Flanders of, of a person and you have to you have to tear down that pedestal. You have to show a little bit of your humanity and your weakness in your sermons. So you can't always be the star of the show. You can't always be in every illustration you give. You can't always be the one making the best decision. Craig Rochelle says that people will 
relate to your humanity and be inspired by your discipline. So you have to have both, right? Paul says, be self-controlled, be disciplined. That's important. People will be inspired by that. that. That's an aspirational thing. It's an aspirational trait to have, to have discipline, to say, here's what I've done to live for Jesus. And here's how I can show that my life has been blessed. Follow me as I follow Jesus. That kind of disciplined, self-controlled way of living. People are inspired. However, they actually relate to and connect with your humanity. So if you're never showing your humanity, they may look at you as an aspirational figure, but they don't really relate to you. They can't connect with you. And if there's a massive discrepancy between those two things where all they see is this superstar up on a pedestal and you've never given them a chance to see that you too have to rely on Jesus, what happens is, is they just think, well, you must be perfect. And so if you ever violate that standard and you're not perfect, you look at them the wrong way, they see that you, you Somebody cuts you off in traffic and they see you go, oh, well, now all of a sudden you've shattered their paradigm that you helped create. So again, you have to point to Jesus and you have to deflect from yourself. This is why Paul called himself the chief of sinners. This is why he said he must increase. I must decrease. All these things have to do with the fact that anyone who leads in ministry knows that you're not who people think you are. I'm not saying you're a hypocrite. I'm not saying that you're uh, living a double life. If you are, stop, like get help, confess, find, find some accountability. But when people think you're perfect and you know deep down the thoughts you have, the motives you have, the, the things that you struggle with that everybody else struggles with, let people into that in a way that's appropriate, all that kind of stuff. Point to Jesus as the one who actually is the savior so they don't artificially start to worship you as a little G God and then just really, really, really have their faith crushed when you let them down. Don't let that happen. Knock that pedestal down. Make sure they know that you're human, that you're looking to Jesus just like they are and lead the way with that. Now, with all of that said, there is still a massive amount of pressure that's on you from all of these, but especially this pillar of virtue. And this is why the last thing I'll say with all of these expectations, the one thing that's incredibly important is you have to take time off. You have to take time away from your responsibilities. I don't mean time away from being a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying time away from being in your role and under the weight of all this responsibility as a constant. So this is why there's two things that I always did when I was in ministry working full-time at churches before I went full-time with Preaching Donkey. Number one, when I had a day off, it was a day off. I, 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 I protected it like I was protecting my firstborn child. I would turn my phone on, do not disturb. I would not set meetings on Fridays. I didn't do anything work-related if I could help it because I needed a break from the constant pressure. Even though I loved the work, Loved the vision of the church, loved the people I worked with. I needed a break. And as long as I was protecting that, on the occasion that that day was interrupted with something that I couldn't help, I could live with it because most of the time that day was protected. Second thing I did is I took real, actual vacations. I talk about this in my first book, Killer Sermons Academy. A lot of people, especially pastors, will feel this responsibility to still be completely connected when they're on vacation. They're checking email. They're on Slack, they're checking text, uh, they're calling into meetings. Some people can be very, very attached the entire time they're on vacation. So what happens is 
You get back from vacation and it didn't do what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to refresh you. It was supposed to energize you. You were supposed to feel a little bit of weight released so that you can come back stronger than, than you were. And if you just work the whole time, that doesn't happen. So you got to protect vacation. And then you need to take sabbaticals. And if your church doesn't have a sabbatical policy, implement one. Go to your leadership team and tell them we... The, the thing people don't understand, and maybe I can just advocate for you here, because if this is something that your leadership team doesn't know, then maybe I'll be the one to tell them. You can just show them this video. In a lot of professions, people will say, well, I don't, I'm an accountant. I don't get a sabbatical. I need, I need a sabbatical or I, I work for, you know, such and such company and they've never given me a sabbatical. And it can seem unfair to someone who doesn't fully understand why it's so necessary. When you are a pastor, even when you do vacations the way I just described, where you really try to get away, and even though you, you guard your day off, you're never really free of the burden that anytime anything happens to somebody in your church, it's your responsibility to handle. If a crisis happens in your family, it's your responsibility like everybody else. If a crisis happens in a family in the church, it's your responsibility too. And most people don't have that burden hanging over their head all the time. You do. You also have the burden if you preach and teach of on a regular basis having to be in a place spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally able to develop a sermon worthy of Sunday, get up and preach it week after week after week. That takes a toll. You have the the burden of people seeing you in all the ways that we've described throughout these seven episodes. That you're supposed to be a professional speaker, a world-class leader, a fundraiser, a counselor, a human resources director. You're supposed to be the master of ceremonies and be impeccable at it and do it at a, a moment's notice and a pillar of virtue. And so is your family. And that weight... Most people in most occupations don't have that kind of weight on top of them. And then you add the spiritual component of you're representing to a lot of people, you're representing the divine, you're representing God. The weight of that and the toll that takes on you and on your soul has to be taken into account. So if you don't have, if your church doesn't have a sabbatical policy, I think every seven years should be a minimum. If you can do it more often, that's great. But I think every seven years to get like three months off minimum is a good rhythm. It kind of follows that biblical six, seven, you know, six days, seven, one day, seven years, all that kind of stuff. Doesn't have to be seven years. Could be five years. I, I think at the very most, I mean, if you're doing 10 years, I mean, that is almost like you might as well not even do it. But I think seven, like five to seven years where you get a good solid two to three to five months even off. And I don't think you should just work the whole time. I don't think your sabbatical should be like, you know, you have to go write a book or you have to read 200, you know, books and come back and report on it. Or you have to go around to these different churches and do research. That's not a sabbatical. That's a, that's a working vacation. You can do things on your sabbatical that fill your soul, that fill you up, that give you life. Totally fine but minimize the expectations and maximize the freedom. And what will happen is, is you'll start to kind of be able to finally decompress from some of that pressure. And then when you re-enter, you're able to handle 
more than you would have because it's like it's it's like this hourglass with the sand just draining. And you gotta flip that thing over and and fill it back up. So that's my advice to you. Please, please, please take care of yourself. These expectations can be unbelievably weighty. Do not crush under them. You will let people down. It is okay. In most cases, they'll get over it because they have to. All right, I love you. I want you to succeed. This series is gonna be here forever on YouTube and on the podcast. So come back to it often if you want to be encouraged or find a way to handle this types, these types of expectations and have a framework for them. They'll be there for you forever. Until next time, remember, if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you and he can speak through me. We'll see you next time here at the Preaching Donkey Podcast.